HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network On Tour. I'm Katie Kiefer, and today we are broadcasting live from the Young Farmers Conference at Stone Barns in Pocantico Hills, New York. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts and the Stone Barns Center for Food and Agriculture for making this coverage possible. Um, we have the dream team here, people, just want you to know. Um, let's start. We're going to have a little panel that's going to talk about uh, all of the fabulous things that we've learned and heard today and yesterday at the Stone Barns uh, Conference for Young Farmers. Um, my panelists include uh, the wonderful Kate Cox, who is the editor-in-chief, I believe, of the New Food Economy, and then the excellent Lisa Held, who writes for Civil Eats and also is uh, the host of the Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, my next victim here is the incredible Tom Philpot, who has been covering art, uh, agriculture and politics for at least 10 years, maybe longer. Uh, he writes for Mother Jones and also uh, hosts not one but two podcasts. <clears throat> one is The Bite, and the other one I've forgotten the name of, but you'll... Secret ingredient. Ah, the secret ingredient. <laughs> and lastly, I have Maddie Oatman here, and Maddie is also at Mother Jones, right? And, um, and so this is like kind of the brain trust, in a way, um, part of the brain trust of all of the people who cover food and agricultural policy in the United States. Um, so, folks... You've had a day and a half of fantastic panels and um, learning experiences talking to all these young uh, farmers who, well, young farmers. <laughs> and um, I laugh maniacally only because farming is such hard work, as we all know from the coverage that we do. Um, so, Kate, why don't you start us off by saying what has uh, caught your attention the most in terms of what you've seen and heard here at Stone Barns? So I've had a morning here, so uh, and it was spent talking to people about how to tell their stories. Um, and so 
What did it, what, my primary takeaway so far is that it is very difficult for people to do that. Ooh. Not just because there isn't enough time, which there isn't, but also it's painful. It's hard to talk about what you do outside of the world you're in. Um, and that was a little bit surprising. So most of the people that came to my little, you know, Lucy from Charlie Brown table uh, to talk said as much. And, and I pretty much asked people, you know, what's your story? And there was a lot of uh, anxiety and kind of squinting and getting tight. And so what we mostly did was sort of have a therapeutic session about how painful <laughs> it can be yes. to try and package yourself up into a single sentence because none of us are a single sentence. That's right. Um, and I found, and I, I ended up in sort of a, a circle of females who find it even harder, I think, to talk about the work that they do and who they are. No surprise there. Not a surprise, but a lot of emotion. So that, it emotion. was refreshing. I think, peop, you know, we need, we need intimate connection. And so I think that was my primary takeaway from this morning is that people are glad to be together and to be able to talk in a room and express concerns and anxieties about the work they're doing. And did, and did the people talk about, like when you want to talk about packaging yourself, which is what you were trying to help people understand is, is uh, part of their job, really. Um, I think when people go into farming, they don't think immediately that they're going to have to do that as well as all the other hats that they wear as a farmer. Um, telling your story is not easy. What were you able to kind of distill down for them in terms of, you know, advice on how best to make that story, you know, create that elevator pitch for themselves. So it was interesting, actually. I mean, my take was your story is not about the product you make uh, right. or grow or the livestock you are rearing. Your story is you. And it's my job to listen to the conflict and the potential evidence of, of how you might be representative of other issues, you know. Um, so people came up and sort of told me about what they grew and all of that, and, it, and I'm like, let's go a little bit deeper. Let's just get outside the, everyone here is farming or in, involved in agriculture in some way. Talk to me about, you know, what, what you're experiencing, because I'm looking for story. So I actually have a good anecdote for this. Yay. I told, told someone about this earlier today. I was like, this is a great story. Um, we had, I had a young couple come up and say, we're beginning farmers, and you know, this is what we're growing. But it turns out what they were doing was incubating. And they're incubating on a farm from, uh, owned by a retired couple who are aging out of the profession, cannot afford to get rid of the land, but also can't afford to farm it, and they're meeting the needs of a younger generation. I'm like, that's the story. I mean, I know you grow vegetables, and vegetables are interesting on Instagram, but <laughs> I, that's a systemic issue, and that's what we that's live right. for, right? And that's what I'm listening for. I want to hear about the travails of being a human being working in this profession. Um, and so I think that's the, it's, it's getting people to think about themselves differently outside the realm of their work and what else they might be able to offer people um, by way of insight, just by sharing. But it is hard. It is yeah. not easy to talk about yourself. Definitely. Lisa, what was, what's your takeaway been so far? Yeah, I mean, I think one, the one thing that really stands out to me, well, two, actually. The, the first thing is I've been writing a lot um, over the past few months this year about the economic challenges that young farmers face. Um, I just said a story yesterday in a report that came out from the uh, USDA on some of the real, you know, how many days farmers are working off the farm, the, the income they're making, which is hardly any. And um, it, it can feel really bleak. And um, I 
just talking to all these young farmers yesterday and today, it feels really hopeful when you actually see people who are making it work and who talk to you about, well, we're doing this really creative thing and we're making it work. And um, so it's, it's, that's been really cool to, to hear those stories. And, um, and also just, just, I mean, this morning, even just doing these interviews, Every single farmer I think that I talked to talked about climate change, every single one. And you know, it, even when I didn't ask a question um, that was directly related, it came up and they're all thinking about it. They're all affected by it yes. and are experiencing you know, extreme weather events and, but also are all really, really think, you know, asking hard questions about how what they're doing can help um, solve some of the challenges we're facing related to the climate catastrophe. So. Fascinating. Absolutely. And Tom, what about you? I think the thing that I've taken away from the last couple of days is I've just been having a lot of great interactions with people who are here as young farmers and just talking with them. And one trend that I've really noticed is that a lot of the people that I've talked to, a surprising number for me, because I haven't been to a farm conference in probably seven or eight years. Um, and uh, one of the things that's really surprised me is how many people that I've met up here who are working on a farm, they're farmers, um, some kind of institutional farm. Uh, lots of people are working on farms that are related to schools. Huh. Um, people are working on farms that I've talked to that are directly tied to a single restaurant. Um, and what, um, I'm just sort of thinking it through as I, um, as I experience it. And you know, there is this massive farming crisis going on right now um, in the United States. And you know, we have, everyone knows this, we have an aging farm population and there's this big transition that has to happen, this land transition as you know, if the average age of a farmer is 65, that's also the retirement age. And so we are you know, facing this, this transition and um, land prices are incredibly high. It's incredibly hard to start an operation that's not on family land, and it's no joke uh, to start one on family land, even if you know you're not having to worry about rent and stuff like that. And I'm wondering if this isn't pointing maybe the old model of a farm being passed down generation or a young person coming out and getting together the financial capital that sort of loans that it's required to start a farm and pay those loans off, maybe that model isn't going to work anymore. And the trend that I'm seeing is maybe new models of preserving farmland in a more community-oriented way, um, thinking about like not just sort of the individual farmers selling into a market, but uh, farming webs. Uh, maybe that is... That's sort of the hopeful take uh, on where it's going. And I've also just been super inspired. I've talked to two different young folks. When I say young, I mean like late 20s, early 30s, uh, working on farms uh, aligned with public schools hmm. for uh, at-risk adolescents that have been basically kicked out of schools. And they just both were telling me the stories of how therapeutic it is. And it isn't necessarily that the, the kids in these schools are gonna go on to be farmers. But just being exposed to farming, being exposed to food in a different way um, is just uh, incredibly, I think, therapeutic. And that, that thing that we've been talking about for 20 years now is finally taking root uh, is really inspiring to me. Fantastic. I love that story, actually. That's beautiful. And Maddie, let's hear what you got to say. 
Yeah, actually, Tom and I have um, both reflected on the fact that land use, which all you just mentioned, seems to be such a big issue. So I yeah. spoke with some farmers this morning, um, two women who are both in different states, both dealing with the fact that they're landless farmers. They're looking for a place, a space to farm. One is looking to um, farm for the Somalian community, community in Minnesota that doesn't have a community garden space. And they're trying to do, for instance, um, raise goats and halal meat, and they can't find that fresh where they are. But there's a huge Somalian population in Minnesota. There is. Um, another woman who's in Oakland and looking to farm medicinal plants for her community um, and, and provide fresh ingredients like Tulsi basil, which they're not finding fresh in the area, mm -hmm. um, but is still looking to secure that space. Uh, as well as an urban farmer in Brooklyn who has had an amazing um, urban garden space but is facing, you know, eviction or, um, you know, there, there's a chance they're going to lose that. So that is a little bit of a trend that I've seen as well. Um, I, I did ask several of these people, though, you know, well, what do you think you'll do next? Kind of expecting that this might force them out of farming, but none of them, all of them were it was very hopeful because all of them were very sure that they were going to be farming um, wherever, you know, wherever that might be. So that was, that was a nice, hopeful element to the interviews. Optimism of the youth. <laughs> Not to dismiss that or anything, but still. <laughs> Cynic that I am. Um, you know, Lisa, you brought something up that I thought was really interesting, which was um, you discussed uh, sort of how innovative some of these young people are. And I wondered if you would tease that out a little bit. Both you and Tom kind of mentioned sort of the farming web, the collaborative uh, work by either buying uh, property together or buying equipment together, which I know is certainly a trend in my home state of Rhode Island. There's a lot of that going on. Um, talk a little bit about how they're kind of parsing um, the difficulties that you face in terms of gaining access to land or capital um, and how they're they're sort of moving on beyond that by working together or coming up with innovative ideas to provide more financial uh, assistance to their products or to their uh, efforts. Yeah, um, I'm trying to think of a, an exa a perfect example. I mean, even just on the, the um, interview before this, Jermaine Jenkins, I think um, her farm is a really interesting example of just really creative um, business model, you know, it's yes. a nonprofit. She created the farm and then she said, well, the neighborhood doesn't need a market, it, it needs a grocery store. And then so she opened a grocery store and the, the farm sells to the grocery store and then they source other products to stock the grocery store for the community. Um, and the whole thing's run as a nonprofit. So it's like a, it's an entirely different business model that totally. you, you sort of like wouldn't, you know, not just, oh, let me go find land, start a farm, sell to a market. And go to a um, farmer's market. Yeah. yeah right. Um, so there, that, that's one example off the top of my head. But I think, yeah, there are definitely a lot of, like Tom mentioned, um, farmers working in institutional settings, um, creative land use. Um, that, that, yeah, that, that's one that stands out to me. Tom, to talk a little bit more about the institutional farming because I, I find that interesting. There's a there's farm to institution New England is a big group up here in the Northeast um, that really pushes uh, you know pushes those contracts and tries to get more and more farmers uh, participating in um, in you know corporate contracts like uh, working in restaurant chains or hospitals or prisons or whatever what have you the public school system etc. What are you seeing? Um, well. I guess what is striking me, um, as someone who d 
did have a go at farming for seven or eight years in the, in the 2000s. Um, you're, you know, when you have a farm operation, you are uh, incredibly financially um, insecure. Um, your hours are endless. Um, there's always some field somewhere being neglected that you got to go get to, and it's Sunday, and you're exhausted, and you got to go weed that field or plant that next succession or whatever. Um, and it's, so it's this incredible, this incredible grind combined with the financial instability. And what I mean by these institutional farms is these are people, and I think actually where we are, Stone Barns is an example of it. True. Um, it's you are in a farm manager position kind of thing. You have a salary, you have hours, you, um, you have a little bit more stability than um, are we gonna sell as many CSA shares as we were hoping? Um, is our you know, greens crop gonna get attacked by flea beetles um, just before farmer's market? And, um, and you know, those kind of things are not as existential. Um, and so it brings um, stability to farming, and it's sort of like, it's a form, you know, the old dream of the CSA, and we could have a whole panel on the evolution of the CSA, um, and I've talked a little bit about that with some young farmers today, but the whole dream of the CSA was that communities would share risk with the farm. And so right. farming is so risky and so insecure that the community is gonna take a share of that. And I think that maybe this institutional thing that I'm just observing is the next phase of that, where, if, you're, um, if you are a farm that's associated with a restaurant, well, that restaurant is sharing some of the risk of this with you. And the restaurant can go buy you know, its vegetables on the market if it, if it has to. Um, and it's not like this crushing thing. You know, it, probably, it, it, it can be quite crushing to lose crop no matter what. But you've got a salary instead of you, you know, just hustling to make that next um, right. sale or have that big farmer's market day. Yeah, yeah. And Kate, I want to ask you as the person who, who was constantly evaluating stories and looking for a story to tell, um, do you see what Tom is seeing, which is a kind of a change, a, a, a sea change in the model of farming um, with this generation that's coming up? Do you think they're going to end up being, here's a two-part question, which I'm famous for. I always ask two or three-part questions. Like, I, I talk for so long, everybody forgets the first part of the question. <laughs> but, um, but I'm just curious, like, if we talk about a change in the farming system and young people adopt that, are you, are you telling those stories? Are you finding a lot of those stories to tell uh, that would be, say, different from what you told five years ago? Yes and no. Okay. Um, but, you know, I'll, let me talk about the trend that we see on the other side of the supply chain, which is yeah. that, yes, there is a trend in farming where people are linking up with an institution that permits them to, you know, have some price protection and, a, you know, guaranteed right. customer and all of that. But on the other side of that is that institutions are now, in some cases, being mandated to locally source product. And that's the other side of that coin. So a, an example would be we covered, um, we covered an effort a few years ago in the University of Maine system had received a mandate from their student body. The students had effectively lobbied mm -hmm. to get 20% local sourcing for all the food that's coming into the, the campus system. And what was really interesting about it was that we covered their 
RFP, their request for proposals, and it was all the sort of usual suspects, Cisco and Compass and the general, you know, food suppliers for institutions, and then a tiny co-op of four or five farmers in Maine who, who said, we're really the right ones to actually be doing local sourcing for you. And, and that was seafood. They had a, a, a commercial fisherman in there. They were growing vegetables. And, you know, it's an interesting kind of point of tension in that for the University of Maine, they were supposed to be doing 20% local sourcing, but that the, the word local, as we all know, was very wide. So it yeah. could be perhaps that they just got all of their ice from a local ice producer <laughs> and they could fulfill that 20% mandate. Um, so there are still, you know, the dominant players are still the dominant players on the yeah. corporate side, but I do think that the demand for food in institutional settings even in the correctional system, you yes. know, from that to hospital, that they are now having to face looking at local sourcing in a different way, and that, but, but that there are players locally, wow, what an unbelievable concept, That right? seems totally new to me. I mean, I was floored, the idea of it, and you know, the, 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 we looked at the RFP, which was something like 70 pages, and it turns out that whoever's supplying food to the University of Maine is also responsible for supplying pencils and paper and stocking the convenience store, right? And so, in the end, the co-op did lose out on the contract because they couldn't be a supplier of all the other stuff universities sure. need. But they got the conversation started, and in that case, I think people felt heartened that a student revolution for better food, at least yielded enough interest on the corporate side to show up at the table. And they right. got a place at the table and part of the conversation. I mean, we covered that story probably three years ago, maybe four years ago, They're, and we're still here, right? I don't have another story to replace it. I can say that much. Right. So right. I think yes and no to your first question. I'm also known for long answers to very long <laughs> questions. I'm like, what am, I, what am I even talking about at this point? Co-ops and there's a university involved. Anyway, yes. I'm not sure, though, if it has to do with a new generation of farmers or a different, a different American eater that is demanding access to food in all of the places that they interact with in any given day. Right. Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, and I wanted to say, I think some of this is like these new models that young farmers are, are open to and are exploring uh, might be a result of some of the economic constraints, the, this crisis, and you know, it's really hard <laughs> to make it work. And so there, I think there used to be this like, well, I'm going to be a farmer. I'm going to go into a ton of debt buying land, and I'm going to do it on my own. And now it's like that. We've seen that that is just really, really hard to do it that way. And so a lot of farmers are more open to like maybe it's working for an institution. Um, I just thought of this farmer in um, Maryland that I wrote about who started a farm like in her the backyard of her parents' house and then literally went around the neighborhood and asked all these people if she could grow. On, they, were, they had lawns that they weren't using in their backyard, extra property, and all these people just let her. And she grew this farm. It's now one of the m biggest, most successful local providers of produce in Baltimore. And she's making a living. She, oh, yeah. And they're actually now they're going to buy land six years later Fantastic. because they went this totally different route that allowed them to you know, get profits and actually make money first. Um, so yeah, maybe it, part of it is almost like, it's hard to do it the traditional way, and so people are more open to Well, the exploring. traditional way is like, you're either a contract farmer, uh, farming dairy or livestock, or you're, a ro you're, you're, you're growing grains or corn or soy, and right now those are losing propositions uh, for any farmer. Um, and the only farmers that seem to be doing well, it's, uh, 
are these people who think up a different way of doing it. Yeah. And I, I don't think that those guys who are suffering right now are ever going to go away um, because that's just the nature of global food trade. Um, but I do think it's really interesting to see this new generation coming up uh, that is coming up with some really innovative and uh, successful ideas to make farming work in the 21st century. And that's something that I think is probably you've all sort of touched on here uh, in terms of, of this panel, like the people that you've met here, uh, the stories that you've heard, and the you know the the, the participants in the in the conference are all demonstrating um, that they're not they're not happy with the old method, and maybe it'll take another generation. But I it sounds like we're on to something uh, quite inspiring and quite exciting. Ooh, I have goosebumps. <laughs> Um, I, I have been told that we need to wrap this up, so I will just say thank you very much, Kate Cox, Lisa Held, Tom Philpot, and Maddie Oatman. We didn't hear enough from you. Um, that'll thank be another you. time. Um, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. And thanks again to the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts for making our on-tour coverage possible. And to Stone Barnes uh, Center for Food and Agriculture for having us here for the Young Farmers Conference. I'm Katie Kiefer. Stay tuned for more. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.